The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. ask you to turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Quite a change we're making here from recent weeks where we were in the Old Testament looking at a narrative section on the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis. I was galloping, whether you knew it or not, through Genesis covering several chapters at a gulp and uh, of course leaving out many fine details. I'm coming now to something quite different for the next five weeks after today, just through November. I want to look at a short series in only one chapter, chapter one of Ephesians, a most important Bible chapter. And so here we're going to be able to go quite slow. In fact, today, really, chapter, chapter one, verse three is my main concern, but I will Read verses 1 through 6 for a little more context. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the Beloved. We'll stop there for now. It's not really a full stop, but we're just going to go back and look at a bit of this today. As I think about this text, I have to ask the question, how many of you ever thought that you'd be challenged by me to ask, are you prepared for some mountain climbing? Did you come with a loop of rope over your shoulder today? and an ice axe and your boots with the metal crampons on the bottom to grip the ice, ready to climb in high places, maybe an oxygen mask to put on because you'd be on the heights. I'm sure you didn't think about such a thing. But that is a sense in which we approach a text like Ephesians chapter 1. There's some real mountain climbing to be done here. Not so long ago, Carol and I watched a movie on TV simply called Everest. I think it was recent vintage. It followed a dramatization of actual, an actual party of climbers, modern-day climbers, who went to the Himalayas to struggle up Mount Everest. And in this particular party, some did not return alive. 
I knew a little bit about mountain climbing, but I suppose not that much because until seeing this film, I did not realize that in Nepal, it's really kind of a national cottage industry. The, the various things that have sprung up to support the needs of the many, many elite climbers who come from all nations of the world expecting to climb either Everest or one of the other Himalayan peaks there. I did not know that there were organized base camps, many of them, where dozens of mountaineers come and can expect to find tents awaiting them and, you know, firewood and supplies and water and all the things that they need, even oxygen and so on, things that they need to get up the mountain. It's a cottage industry there. And here it was portrayed how dozens and dozens of these people are, are from there from every different nation. Many of the climbing parties have several nations together in them. And they're all there waiting for the right hole, the right forecast in the weather so their group can set out and don their oxygen masks and make it up that arduous, almost unbelievable climb to the summit of a peak like Mount Everest. Some of the film footage in that movie was really spectacular. And, you know, if I would question, well, you know, I don't go out of my way to do any extra flights of stairs that I don't have to do, but uh, here are these people climbing these un unbelievable things up ice and everything. And uh, I said, why would you do that? Risk your life doing it. Well, maybe if you saw the, what they see when they're there on the roof of the world, you'd see some payback at least for the arduous effort. You literally look out and, and you have to imagine, you know, anywhere we've ever been in the world, you can look somewhere at a distance and see something that's higher than where you are. Well, imagine when there's nothing higher than where you are. You are on the absolute peak of the entire planet. You feel like you're on God's front porch looking out and there's no higher place. It's pretty amazing to see. Well, there are people who have called Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the Swiss Alps of the Bible. I like that title because the Swiss Alps are something we can visualize. Many of you, I'm sure, have been to Switzerland or Austria. Maybe, like myself, I've not actually been on the ground there, but I've seen them from an airplane. And you know that they are among the magnificent mountains, or our own Rocky Mountains in, in the United States as well are quite splendid. And we look at these places and we are inspired by peaks that have snow on them in the summer and we think, wow, you know, what a landscape, what a beautiful world God has made. Well, those who have said that Ephesians as the Swiss Alps of the Bible are trying to say that here there are heights and depths and wonders that are so amazing in their display, doctrinally speaking that uh, they just take our breath away. And I hope in coming weeks we'll sense that a little bit as we move verse by verse through this important first chapter. I want to spend six weeks on this, as I said, on just this one chapter, and I know I won't cover every single little thing that's here, but I hope we hit a lot of them anyway. The finest commentary, in my opinion, ever written on Ephesians was by Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's eight volumes in it. It fills probably about maybe 16 inches of shelf space. And you might think, how does somebody write eight volumes filling up that many books on the, a little book like Ephesians? Compare it to 
jo- it's not even as long as Joseph's story in Genesis. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones calls his first volume on chapter 1, the title of it is God's Ultimate Purpose. And I think that is an excellent title for the overall look that I want to take with you at this. God's ultimate purpose in his plan of salvation, his plan for mankind that began before creation and extends forward in time until earth and our clocks and our calendars will no longer be meaningful. God planned a splendid eternal path of rescue by his grace, by his power, working among people who were not even sensible that he was doing such a thing before it happened and they came upon it. In the original Greek that the letter was written in, many point out the fact that Paul is so enthusiastic, so fired up by his subject that from verse 3 through verse uh, 12, at least, It's a single sentence in Greek. Now, you look at it in the English and you say, I see periods and commas, and of course you do, because nobody would allow somebody to publish a sentence like that. If you had such a sentence on your English composition, your teacher would have a field day with the red pen. Say, you need to break this up. It's a run-on sentence. Well, Paul is almost like a, you know, like a Yellowstone uh, National Park geyser of praise to God here as this sentence just spews out phrase upon phrase upon phrase. Someone said it's like a golden chain of so many links as he is praising God for his salvation in many different words and thoughts and phrases that, as I said, would not to us be a right way of expressing, but he couldn't cut it off. He didn't know where to stop or how to stop. And he wrote here uh, not about church problems. You know, the letters of Paul usually have greetings. I greet Aristarchus and, you know, this guy and her and admonish this person to do something differently and say hello to my friends over there. Listen, this is to the church where Paul had his longest resident pastorate, three years. He knew these people. He knew them better than most people to whom he wrote a letter. And yet, it's not like Philippians at all with all those friendly little greetings and, and, hey, and by the way, I need to comment on this problem you asked me about. None of that. It's more of a formally composed doctrinal letter planned for instruction in the word and truth of God. We believe it was meant to be passed around among the other churches near Ephesus in Asia Minor. But again, not so much personal, but important doctrine that the, that the churches would hold this up, read it, study it, think about it, talk about what Paul was saying. He wrote as God's apostle. He names himself that in the beginning, writing to the saints, the saints who are in Christ Jesus, faithful ones in Christ Jesus. I trust I don't have to spend a lot of time refuting the utterly ridiculous idea that began in the Middle Ages uh, that saints are some kind of superhero Christians with halos around their heads and and great abilities to work miracles and we should pray to them and all of that. Total foolishness, not based on Scripture at all. A saint is a believer in Christ, plain and simple. Paul writes to the saints 
who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to you if you know Christ and you look to him as Lord. Now, I want to say to you first here of three points that I'll make today, and I have to be briefer on Communion Sunday, but as we try to climb this great peak of this opening prayer, I want you to realize that this passage itself is in the form of a prayer of praise. Just notice how verse 3, after some introductory words in 1 and 2, verse 3 begins as a prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. That's the subject and the predicate. May God be blessed. And it proceeds as a prayer. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Paul offered here a Trinitarian prayer. You don't have to search real hard in this first chapter, even just in the first half of the first chapter, to find all three persons of the Trinity. He starts out with the work of God the Father, blessed be God the Father, and it seems like he's the one working at first, but then quickly in comes Jesus Christ, through whom the Father is doing things that we're going to discuss and break down. And then not too far down, by verse 13, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit who applies the work of the Father and the Son. So it's a Trinitarian prayer of praise that Paul is offering here to God who, before history began, was considering what he would do and how he would plan it, And then in history, in time and space, through Jesus Christ, performing and putting forth that which would give us our salvation. You'll see next week, I just dipped there for a moment, but not to stay. One four is a little farther than I want to go today. But how the Father before the world began, before the foundation of the world, it says. This is prehistory. What did the Father do? He chose his elect ones from all eternity, the ones who would be drawn to Christ. Now, there's unpopular scripture for you, so unpopular that some people have just basically acted like it's not in the Bible. Why, it's unpopular to think God chose me. Didn't I choose him? Human beings imagine that the sun rises and sets upon themselves, and they're the ones that do all the choosing. Well, the scripture says God did significant choosing. We find Jesus saying the same thing in John chapter 6, 37. He said, all those that the Father gives to me will come to me. He was saying, it's guaranteed that a certain group of people will come to me and I will receive them. Who are they? The ones that the Father gives to me. Same chapter, John 6, 65. Jesus was explicit there. No one can come to me unless my Father in heaven draws him to me. I often tell people my first grade lesson when I speak of John 6, 65. The teacher, you know, somebody would be sure early in first grade, our our classroom, I guess not all schools have this, but our our classroom way back at the dark ages, we had a, a lavatory at the back of the class so you didn't have to leave the classroom but you had to raise your hand and ask if you needed the bathroom. Teacher, yes, Johnny, can I go to the bathroom? 
Yes, Johnny, I'm sure you can go to the bathroom, and you may. And the teacher got that lesson across. I always remember that. He was saying, do I have the ability to go to the bathroom? Of course you do. And I'm allowing you permission to do it as well. Now, seems silly, but think of that in John 6, 65. Jesus said, no one has the ability to come to me unless my Father in heaven draws him. Clearly, God cast a ballot in favor of his elect people. This is a great mystery. It causes a lot of questions, a lot of debates, but you dare not simply eject it from the Scripture. Wait till next week. We'll get on that one. But that certainly is the work of the Father. A prayer of praise here for the triune God doing his work of salvation. But secondly... I want you to be sure you see that this is a sovereign work of God in salvation. God's not consulting others and saying, what do you think I should do? He didn't sit down with a a cadre of great patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, okay, fellas, you know your people. What will they tolerate? What do you think I can offer them as a plan of salvation? Of course not. God revealed salvation out of himself and he is sovereign in it. Well, we just don't start that way. The reason we don't agree with this is because we always start with ourselves, don't we? Somebody says, well, let me tell you how I feel about what the Bible says. Or, you know, I think the Bible must mean this because I don't think it could mean that. And so we have our own translation, our own origination of a plan of salvation, which is not true to the sovereign plan that the Father God himself put into action. Paul in Ephesians makes no apologies for those who who might say, well, I'm sorry, Paul, my notion of how God should do things doesn't agree with yours. Paul said, well, that's, that's fine, but I'm the apostle of God telling you how it is. And it's your notion that needs adjusting, not what God has revealed. Here is the greatness and the glory of a sovereign God, the Most High, who is God over all, revealing how he will save. Dr. Light is going to preach tonight about Moses at the burning bush. I haven't heard his sermon, but I'm sure it's going to take in that phrase about Moses being told to take the shoes off his feet for the ground on which he stood was holy. Well, it was just ordinary ground in one sense, but the point was Moses was in the presence of a God who was everything and who could reveal himself in power and might. And Moses, alongside that, was nothing. And he was literally to realize that he needed to bow low before this God. I think of Paul coming to the conclusion of Romans, an earlier book, than Ephesians, a long book of doctrine, wonderful book. We all, many people love Romans, love most of what's in Romans anyway. Some things people don't love as much as others. But Paul comes to the end of that doctrinal section of Romans in chapter 11 at verse 33, and he's kind of rising up to a doxological uh, utterance of praise when he says that all of this is from him. And through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. The great sovereign God has been considered in Romans, and Paul can, can only stand back and be in awe of things that are high and lifted up. This isn't true when we're talking about religion. I will insist until there's no breath in my body that Christianity is not a religion. Of course, the world calls it that and says, well, here are the world religions, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity. The key difference is we claim something utterly unique that the others don't claim. The others are all man's ways of constructing some kind of a ladder or some kind of a step stool of reaching up building up credits, building up good behavior before God or else accumulating understanding so that somehow by either knowledge or behavior you attain closer and closer to God. That's religion. Christianity nowhere claims that. In fact, it tells you you have no achievements, no accomplishments, no goodness or anything that means one thing before God, only the grace of God will have you come and know his salvation. Paul begins here telling us of a true God who actually lives high above Mount Everest. Mount Everest is a sand hill to God. And he makes himself known to men and women by drawing us into the redeeming knowledge of his son, Jesus. I know that today on a communion Sunday I have less time than usual and I can't do more than simply whet your appetite, I hope, a little bit to discover some of these great truths that are going to be here in Ephesians 1. But once more, I want you to hear verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I wonder if you understand what Paul is saying there. He's saying, here we are. He's addressing real human beings who are still alive in this world, still in their human bodies with their minds. And he's saying, we, as we still live in this world and trust in Christ, are actually being blessed with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. God intends for Christians to live at the meeting place of our physical existence in this world and our spiritual existence in the world yet to come. We are so united with the dynamic life of Jesus Christ that we literally live in his life with the Father as inhabitants of two worlds at the same time. Paul elsewhere says we are in Christ's new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 still alive, still sinful, still having all the problems we had before, and yet we're completely different because we're living in Christ and he is living in us. And in fact, that little phrase, in Christ, becomes so very important to Paul. He uses it about 12 times in this book of Ephesians, and someone has actually counted 164 times in all of his other writings speaking about a man or a woman who is in Christ, united to Christ in such a way that when Christ died on his cross and paid the atonement price of the penalty of sin that you and I owed, we died and our penalty died. And when Christ came to life in a true life, a miraculous new life, 
we came alive in him in a whole new way so that actually the things that God would give us, forgiveness of sins and atonement, relief from the penalty of spiritual death, of perishing, all of those things are gone. We already are in the heavenly places and things that would have been on us as penalties are gone. They're not on us anymore. And we're raised in this world where we don't yet have resurrection bodies. And yet, our resurrection body is guaranteed to us. Here in chapter 2, if we just peek ahead a little bit to Ephesians 2, 6, Paul is going to say, God raised us up with Christ and seated us together with him in the heavenly places. You're seated in a pew in Mannheim Township, Pennsylvania, in a building called Westminster Presbyterian Church. But if you know Christ, you're seated in the heavenly places. Your seat is reserved. It's yours. No one can take it away. It belongs to you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, every believer today has one foot on earth and one foot planted securely in heaven. And there isn't a question. There are many times when we, we challenge. People come to me and say, Pastor, I, I can't work through this assurance of salvation thing. I just don't feel assured. And we work on that. But I say to them, look, you know, you're belonging to Christ. If he says he has seated you with himself in heavenly places, has he done that or not? Did somebody steal your seat? Or are you seated with Christ because you belong to him? And that means at your death, you are with Christ. You step out of this earthly place to a full and total inheritance. Funerals, you know, people say, people say to me, just, this has been such a period recently. We've had, I, th- I don't know how many funerals I've done recently, about six, I guess. And people say, oh, don't, don't you get down doing that? I say, well, not if it's a, a Christian's funeral, no. Why should I? A wonderful thing has happened. Someone has inherited their place seated with Christ, and they're seated with him fully and joyfully, looking on his face, singing his praises, living out a meaningful, purposeful life in the presence of God as an exalted, perfected soul. Why would I get down because of that? I'm down because of the people who come to the funeral and listen to me preach the gospel and walk away and still have no idea what I'm talking about. And they go out and decide I'd rather perish. And maybe they do, even soon. That I get sad about, not about the one who has gone to his heavenly reward. Well, Ephesians 1 unveils for us a a thrilling panorama of God working to design and originate, initiate, motivate, and be the King and Lord of salvation in many different words here, choosing us, redeeming us, forgiving us. We're going to look at all these words as we encounter them here in the next few weeks. But he's telling us that God is working out his ultimate purpose. And his ultimate purpose cannot fail. It started before the foundation of the world. Father, Son, and Spirit were all involved in it. We didn't deserve it. And yet, in Christ, amazingly, he called some to be redeemed. Why not others? That's not a question I'm answering today, nor can I ever answer it to your satisfaction. 
But God calls those who come. And Jesus says, whoever comes, I will never cast out. You can rest secure in the down payment on eternity that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. And it belongs to you this very hour if you know him and you love to call him your Lord. Amen. Father, today as we come to your table, I'm sure some are here in difficulty, in sadness, in confusion, hurt, bewildered. The world has kicked them around. They're not sure where they stand. I pray, O oh God, that they would be in Christ and know that to be in Christ is, is everything. It's all the difference that could be possible. Assure us of that. Show us that. How we thank you for being a God who designed our salvation from beginning to end. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.